26, Romans 3, 21 through 26. Now, just uh, <clears throat> to remind us where we've been and where we're going, I uh, finished a few weeks ago the book of Philippians. We've been doing some standalone kind of messages. Uh, it's hard to start a brand new book at this time of the year uh, with people traveling for Thanksgiving and then moving your back and then your, those kind of things. So we're going to do some standalone things, and then I'm going to do one of the minor prophets. I, I may, right now I'm thinking I'm going to do Habakkuk. Um, uh, beginning in January, probably the second Sunday in January, work through one of the minor prophets, which my hope is, is as I work through that minor prophet, and you work out the sticky pages in your Bible, you know, we don't turn to a whole lot, those minor prophets, uh, that as we look through that, it'll also help you understand how to study and understand the other minor prophets, and not only the minor prophets, but the major prophets. Of course, the difference between minor prophets and major prophets is not one more important than the other. One's just uh, shorter-winded than the other, right? They wrote less. That's why they're called the minor prophets. But we'll put those in their historical context, and really, the minor, most of the minor prophets have the same theme uh, all throughout. So I want us to be able to work through one of those books together. That's kind of the next book we're going to, uh, is Habakkuk, Lord willing. Um, but this morning, we're going to be in just a tremendously <coughs> pivotal, important, essential text of the gospel and understanding the gospel, which means good news, and why is it such good news? Uh, in fact, this is uh, um, in these short verses, 21 through 26, is uh, one of the most profound teachings on the gospel in all of Scripture. Um, so I'm excited to be able to look at this with you all this morning. Uh, so if you're there already, let me read these verses uh, out loud for us, beginning in verse 21. But now, apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been manifested, being witnessed by the law and the prophets, even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all those who believe. For there is no distinction. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, being justified as a gift by his grace through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus, whom God displayed publicly as a propitiation in his blood through faith. This was to demonstrate his righteousness because in the forbearance of God, he passed over the sins previously committed for the demonstration, I say, of his righteousness at the present time so that he would be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Let's pray. Lord, uh, we come before you again as your people, saved by your grace, changed from the inside out. To look at your word, to hear from you, and Lord, to trust uh, you to change us through your word and the power of the Holy Spirit. So Lord, we're, we're, we're asking you to do that again. Lord, open our ears and our eyes, and most important, our hearts, to hear and to receive and to embrace your word this morning. And Lord, as we work through this, um, these amazing truths in this passage where I, I pray even though we've heard them before, that we would be amazed. We would be overwhelmed. We would never get over what you have done for us. What you are doing in us. And what you will do in and for us. And we pray this in Jesus' name. watch out here that's not for my benefit, more for yours. Um, some people say that means absolutely nothing. It does mean something um, uh, so that I, I usually I have it on this arm here so it's kind of hard to see it underneath here, right? So I'm going to make sure that I can see my watch and and be a good steward of your time and God's time. Um, but let me ask you a question. Have you ever been asked to do something you felt was impossible? You ever been asked? Yeah. Alright, we've got one honest person. Thanks, Agnes. Yeah. Most of us probably it sometimes can point to times in our life when somebody asked us to do something we thought was impossible. And there may be things that you were actually asked to do that were impossible. I don't know. I can think back many times in my life. One of the times I thought about was when I was in eighth grade, I had Mr. Collins for history. And Mr. Collins had like this whole different grading scale. It, you didn't take tests and get certain grades, okay, and we just average these grades out. He had a point system. So if you wanted to get an A, you had to get it between an 18 and 20 points. And you had to do certain things to get certain amount of points to get there. So everybody started with a zero. 
and you worked your way up to whatever it was. And I think it was a B was 16, 17 points, a C was whatever. You, and you had to do these different projects. And if you scored well on a test, you got so many points, you may get a half a point for getting an A on a test. It sounds funny. It was an interesting thing. But it was challenging. And one of the things we were supposed to do is memorize the presence of the United States. And when he told us at the beginning of the year, I said, is he crazy? Now, I grew up, and it didn't even start changing then. I, had a, I was a terrible reader. I just struggled reading. I, didn't, I couldn't comprehend. I stuttered. I, reading out loud, I just hated to read. I was the kid who read the first, middle, and last chapters and did my book reports. And all right, Because I just hated to read. It wasn't until college that the Lord really gave me a love to read and, of course, his word and to read other things and, and to edify me. And now I love to read. Um, but I, I just couldn't imagine memorizing all the presidents of the United States. Now, he had a little formula that you would, you, you would kind of remember him, but you, it was a lot harder even than this. This was hard enough for me to do. Washad, Jeff, Mad, Monad, Jack, Ben, Hare, Typo, Tate, Phil, Pierre, Lynn, John Grant, Hagar, R. Cleaver, Cleaver, Mac, Brooks, Tackle, Hardcore, Who Wrote Sugar, Ike, Bush, Clinton, Bush, Obama. All right? So those are the presidents. So he broke them down, this little sing-song thing. Wow, I, I, I'm not musically inclined. All right? What was the little instrument you just played over here, Eric? What was it? A, a penny whistle, okay? I've never, I wouldn't know that. It was a flute to me. I don't know. I mean, <laughs> I, that, that, this, I don't, so it was even sing songs. So the people who were musically inclined, they got it pretty easily. I mean, it boom, 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 boom. And I, mean, I was just struggled. Like, this is the worst thing. And then when you stood up to say that, then he would ask you, who's the 18th president? What's his full name? Name one important thing he did. It wasn't just do that. I mean, and then he says, well, who's the president before and after him? Full name. And then he'd ask you, who's the... 22nd president and he would you know and he'd quiz you like that just so you weren't just doing that and I thought this is going to be crazy and people would stand up and do it and I said I'll never get this done I thought that was the most impossible thing but I did it I actually got it finally got it done I was probably the last one in the class to get it done and I still remember it and I can I remember my presence by that goofy little thing that, doc, that, that Mr. Collins he was a doctor Dr. Collins taught us but, but it wasn't impossible but I thought it was but mankind has dealt with a truly impossible problem from the beginning, from Adam and Eve, there's been an impossible problem that mankind has had to deal with. And is that that is how to be made right with God. Because he demands his righteousness. He, his standard is amazing. His standard is in, impossible to attain. Just a couple summary verses of that. Matthew 5, 48. 48 Therefore you are to be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. It's in the uh, Sermon on the Mount, and the purpose of the Sermon on the Mount, never forget this, is to shatter self-righteousness. He's speaking to Pharisees, and they were self-righteous. They were going to make themselves right with God by what they did and who they were, at least who they thought they were. And the whole purpose of doing that in, in the initial context, there's other things we learned there, was to shatter self-righteousness. When he says, therefore, to be perfect as your Heavenly Father is perfect, are you kidding me? No way. Another summary, um, 1 Peter 1.16, which is actually a quote from two different places in Leviticus, because it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. That's the standard. And I don't know about you, but I see that, and every person who's honest, and we'll see this as we work down this passage, that's impossible. I can't be righteous. I can't be perfect. I can't be holy. But that is God's standard. The righteousness of God must be ours to meet his standard. Hey, the president test, easy. That's cake. Any other test we might have in this life, any other thing we're asked to do in this life, cake compared to this. See, Job realized this. He struggled with this dilemma as well, that how could he attain the righteousness of God and be made right with God? And in, in Job 9, uh, the whole passage is amazing. We don't have time to go through it. But in Job 9, 2, he says, but how can a man be in the, in the right before God? This is the age-old question. How can a man be made right with God? How can they stand before God and he say, you're righteous, you're right, you're perfect, you're holy? How can that happen? Job's struggling with it. Um, then he, he begins expressing the heart of every honest person throughout this passage and begins to realize, I'm in trouble. I can't meet the standard. And he summarizes it at the end of this, in verse 20 of this passage. Though I am righteous, at least I think I might be righteous, my mouth will condemn me. Though I am guiltless, he will declare me guilty. guilty. Now, through that, he said he wasn't blameless, he wasn't righteous, he wasn't guiltless. 
Other people might thought he was. But he said, I'm not. In, in, in God's sight, I'm not blameless. I, I'm, I'm guilty. I'm not righteous. He comes to the conclusion that he has no hope in attaining the righteousness of God. That's Job's conclusion. But thankfully, God answered Job's question. How can a man be in the right before God? He does answer that question. And thankfully, in our passage this morning in Romans chapter 3, God answers that question for us as well. How can we be made right before God? How can we attain the righteousness of God, which he demands from every man, woman, and child? Well, as we're going to look down through these uh, few verses here this morning in Romans 3, uh, we're going to discover uh, seven truths concerning the righteousness of God. And we want to do that so that we might embrace his way of righteousness and not ours, because ours doesn't work. And we'll see that here in this passage. So the first truth we see concerning the righteousness of God in this passage is the manifest, manifestation of God's righteousness. The manifestation of God's righteousness. Look there in verse 21 with me. But now, apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been manifested. Notice the word manifested, uh, or has been made known. It means to make clear. Uh, it's been made clear. What is it that's been made clear or manifested? Well, let's look at the first part of the verse, which explains what it is that's been manifested. Notice the first word, though, so we get this in context. But. But. It denotes a contrast with what has just preceded it. All right, we're in verse 21, so we want to look back and see what's just preceded, not just in verse 20 or 19, but even what Paul has dealt with in, in Romans up to this point. In, in Romans, since Romans 1.18, Paul has been showing that every person in the world is without righteousness. The righteousness account is empty, but they think it's full. They're all empty, every person in this world, no matter who they are, their righteousness uh, is, is they're without righteousness and therefore they're condemned and they're under God's wrath. That's what has been t- taking place all the way up from 118 to then to 319. Look at 319 which is right before our passage. Now we know that whatever the law says it speaks to those who are under the law so that every mouth may be closed and all the world may become accountable to God. No one's mouth can put forth an argument concerning their guilt and lack of righteousness. No one can say, oh, well, except me. Everybody else is condemned. Everybody else is lacking righteousness, but, but, not, but, but, but me. No one can say that. See, God's standard leaves them speechless. That's what Paul's saying here. We, we have nothing to say. But it's, he, Paul has pegged us. We're all guilty. We all lack the righteousness that God requires. Now, at the beginning, of, again, at verse 21, with, with, with the word, but Paul will tell the readers... And the hearers of this letter to the church of Rome, how it is that they may have the righteousness that they have none of at this point, but need in order to be made right with God. Now look at verse 21 again with me. Notice the phrase, apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been manifested. The thing manifested or made clear is that the righteousness of God is apart from the law. He said, this is clear. The righteousness that God requires is apart from the law. What it is that God requires doesn't come from, hey, let me understand the law. First of all, if you want to understand the law, you, don't, you can't start with, st- stop with the Ten Commandments. That's just a summary of 613 commandments in the law. So go memorize those. Most of us have trouble with just ten, right? Summarize it. So we want to memorize Just doing that would be difficult enough, 613 of them. I mean, we can't even do that, let alone keep them. And you're saying, that's not what makes us right with God. Look back with me in verse 20 here in our passage of chapter 3. Because by the works of the law, no flesh will be justified in his sight, for through the law comes the knowledge of sin. Now notice the word law there. It's it's a a Greek word uh, that can refer to legalism. It can refer to the Ten Commandments. It can refer to the entire Mosaic law. It can refer to the entire Old Testament. Or it can just refer to a general rule or principle. That's what the word can refer to. Uh, its exact meaning must be determined by what? Context. You got it. Yeah. All right. Twelve years of us. All right. Context. It's the three most important things when you study the Bible. Context, context, context. That dictates. Not etymology. What's etymology? It's a study of meanings of words. Mean, words have meaning, right? But they have range of meanings. So you can't just necessarily say, because this word means this over here in John, 
it means that in Romans. And we all do that. Be careful about word studies. It's not that they're wrong. They're part of understanding. But context always dictates what the word means. Always. In our culture, same thing. It, try to take some of our English words and go to England. Okay? I went to England one, one summer before, the summer of nineteen ninety four, my last semester at Georgetown College. I was athletes in action to te- teach American rules football with some other football players here from other colleges. One guy was actually from TCU and, and Bill Tomney, great friend, and we went over there, and they had they spoke English and we spoke English, but man, it was like foreign language. So we, Bill and I, one morning we're, we 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 were staying with families and we were in this little place called Brighton, England, and stayed with this family. And we got up with the family, had breakfast with them or tea. I forget what we had tea a lot there. All right, but we had breakfast too, and the kids were getting ready to go off to school, and and the, the mom was saying a few different things. She said, "Hey, and don't forget your rubbers." Okay, now you may think it's your boots. No. And Bill and I were worried about what they were encouraging their kids with, all right? It was their erasers. So words have meaning, but they have meaning in context, don't they? Completely different context from what a guy from Kentucky and a guy from Texas ever heard rubber. I mean, that's on your tires or something else. I mean, it was completely different. But words have meaning in context. So what would, what the word, would the word law mean in this context? Not just because it means it over here, it means over here. What does it mean? That's part of it. I mean, you can't, there, there is a range. You can't go outside of the range, okay? But there's a range. So what in that range of the meaning of the word law does it mean here, all right? Uh, in, in previous chapters, Paul has shown that how Jews and Gentiles are condemned by law, uh, by God. The Jews have a formal written law to which they're all guilty, He's been talking to Jews, so he probably has that in mind, the formal written law. We go ahead and say all 613. The Gentiles, Paul said, had the principle of law written on their hearts. He's dealt with that before him too. Whoa, okay, maybe it's more than just those 613 laws and the, 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 the Mosaic law for the Jews. It is, because he's also speaking to Gentiles. So it's, yes, it's both, right? It's both the written law and the law written on the heart of all people, even if they've not been giving a, given a written law like the Jews. That's what he's speaking of here with the word law. So in, in verse 20, all right, it tells us that this law does not justify people. Whatever our list of rules is that we say are right or God says is right, which in our heart are written down, that does not justify, keeping those things does not justify us before God. It doesn't make us right. It doesn't allow us to attain the righteousness of God, which is perfect, holy. We have to score 100%. God doesn't grade on the curve. None of that. You old man, I want to drop this class. We all like to curve classes, right? That's not God. You score 100%. He tells these people that God's righteousness is not based on human merit or anything man can do in his own power. So understanding the truth that righteousness that God demands does not come through the keeping of a set of rules uh, through human achievement is critical to understanding the gospel. In fact, it's not just critical, it's essential. If we don't understand that, we'll never understand the gospel. And maybe you're here this morning and you've always thought, boy, if I just kept the Ten Commandments, then God would declare me righteous and I'd get heaven. Or if I just kept the Ten Commandments better than the person next door, maybe he'll let me in. But here in Romans 3, we see the righteousness that God requires is apart from the law. Whether it be the Ten Commandments, 613 laws of the Mosaic Mosaic Law, or the law written on the heart of all individuals in this world, everybody would agree, murder is wrong. It's universal. So what some people call murder murder is a little bit different, maybe. But there's at least one stream of what people call murder is wrong. It's just there. And not just because they have a written law. Well, I trust that you're there. If you're trying to keep whatever law it is, whatever your standard is, you think that needs to be made right with God. I, I trust that if that's the case, then it will fulfill, the, the law will fulfill its purpose in you. What's the purpose of the law? To show us our sin and need for, for a Savior. That's the purpose of the law, not what we keep to go to heaven. And wherever that ever got into Christianity, I don't know, because that's not Christianity at all. That's like every other world religion. Did you know that? Every other world religion, it's, it's a spelling issue. You've been, many of you have been here before. You, you, you've heard this before. Every other world view or world religion outside of Christianity spells 
Made, being right, made right with God this way. D-O. It's what you do. But Christianity spells it this way. D-O-N-E. It's what he's done. And it's always been back like that, even from Genesis chapter 3 in the first gospel. It's always been Christianity. Christ was there from the beginning. It's always what, about what he has done. And if you're there, my prayer is the law will show you, will shatter your self-righteousness. And so you'll never meet God's standard. And you can't cheat off your neighbor because they can't meet God's standard. Even the smartest kid in the class or the person you think attains to the law the best they can and follow after them, it'll never happen. Then and only then is, is God's law works in your heart to show you your need for a Savior will you really understand the gospel. Well, some would say, well, maybe you're thinking, or some would say, or maybe you're thinking to yourself this morning, okay, the righteousness of God that requires, that God requires of us does not come through human achievement, but that is different. I kind of alluded to this just now, all right? That's different the Old Testament, right? Uh, the Old Testament, all right, the, the people, what they did was they went through the sacrificial system and God forgave them. Wrong! All right? That is a wrong. You get an X, you flunk the course. If you think that's what the Old Testament's about, it's not. The blood and bolts of bulls and goats. This is the medication. I'll blame it on that, all right? All right. The blood of goats and bulls cannot forgive sin. It says that in the New Testament about the Old Testament. It never could forgive sin. It's just animals. It can never forgive sin. But many people believe that today, and somehow that's crept into the church. It's different in the Old Testament than it is in the New Testament. And, and maybe you're convinced with that. But keeping the law, is that's how they were made right with God. They were granted God's righteousness by doing that. Well, thankfully, God through Paul clearly shows us how those in the Old Testament were made right with God. And this is the second truth we see in our passage this morning concerning the righteousness of God. The witness to God's righteousness. The witness to God's righteousness. Look at the last, the second half of verse 21. Being witnessed by the law and prophets. This phrase is used to support the truth about apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been manifested. Or the law doesn't, does not and cannot bring about righteousness in us. He, he says, based on that, he said, but this has been witnessed. This is nothing new. It's been witnessed in the law and the prophets. It's another way of saying the Old Testament. All right? The law and the prophets kind of incorporates all that. No one at any time in the history of the world has ever been made right by keeping the law. Not just the people in the New Testament. No one. In fact, in chapter 4 of Romans, Paul makes this even clearer. Look at chapter 4, verses 6 through 8. And as we look at that, I want you to remember verses 7 and 8, all right, are a quote from Psalm 32. It's very important. A quote from the Old Testament. Look what they say in Romans, what it says in Romans 4, 6 through 8. Look there with me. Just as David also speaks of the blessing on the man whom to, God, to whom God credits righteousness apart from works, blessed are those whose lawless deeds have been forgiven and whose sins have been covered. Blessed is the man whose sin the Lord will not take into account. David understood that people were not made right or justified before God through the works of the law. He understood that. This is King David, who wrote most of the Psalms. The only man in the Bible is called a man after God's own heart. He understands that he will not be made right. No one will be made right in the keeping of the law. In fact, the entire Old Testament from Genesis through Malachi teaches the righteousness of God comes apart from keeping the law. Now look at what Jesus says to, the group, to a group of Jews who thought the Old Testament scriptures representing the law and uh, prophet, that they thought they, it had the power to save. He's, he's dealing with these, this group of people, these, these Pharisees, meaning in the Jewish nation. Look what he says. You search the scriptures because you think in them you have eternal life. It is these that test about, testify about me. He's saying that the Old Testament, the law and prophets, all right, you, you think these give you eternal life. Wrong. You're wrong. They don't give you eternal life. The law and the prophets don't give you eternal life, but instead they point you to the Messiah or the Christ through which God would provide the righteousness that he demands. That's what Jesus is saying. They point to me. It's all about me. Now, Jesus is the only one that can say that and not be arrogant. Right? If we say it's all about me, we say pride, arrogance, but not Jesus. He was dealing with how can someone be made right with God, and he was trying to point that out to them because that's what they believe. Well, I think we've answered the question whether the Old Testament, the people in the Old Testament were made right through the law of sacrificial system. No, they, had, they weren't, and nobody believed that. It's not taught anywhere in Scripture. 
they too receive the righteousness of God apart from the law. And if people are not and never been made right with God or declared righteous through the keeping of the law, then how can they attain or acquire the righteousness of God? Because it makes no sense, right? We live in a world, and we are, as humans, and it's always been like this, we attain things, don't we? We work for things, and people give us stuff. That's just how we're wired. I mean, it's, it's, that's, that's our economic system, right? You work, and you're given something. There's nothing wrong with that. That's prescribed in the Bible as to make a living and those kind of things. But we do certain things, and people give us things back. So to think about how in the world could we be made right with God if it's not through keeping a set of rules. If I don't do this, 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 and this, how in the world can that happen? Well, guess what Paul does? He answers our question, if we have that question this morning. It's our third truth in our passage about the righteousness of God, the acquisition of God's righteousness. Look at the, the first half of verse 22. Even the righteousness of God through faith in Christ Jesus. So not only have people never received or acquired the righteousness of God through keeping the law, but instead it's always been acquired by faith. Always been acquired by faith. Uh, look with me at Romans 4, verses 2 and 3 of which verse 3 is an Old Testament quote from Genesis 15, 6. It's what it says in Romans 4, verses 2 through 3. For if Abraham was justified by works, but he had something to boast about, but not before God. For what does the Scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness. Abraham was not made right or justified before God through the works of the law. In fact, the Mosaic Law didn't come into existence for over 400 years after Abraham. So it's impossible for Abraham to be made right by the works of the law. It wasn't even around, at least the formal Mosaic Law. Instead, it says he believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness. Abraham acquired God's righteousness by faith. The word belief, the word faith, it's the same Greek word. This is a, a, and we go back to the Old Testament, it translated to the Greek, they use the same word for faith and belief. It's interchangeable. He believed God. He put his faith in God. And it was credited to him as righteousness. And Paul stresses this again in verse 5 there in chapter 4. Look what it says. But to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is credited as righteousness. Just like Abraham was saved, so is anybody else who believes. It's credit to them as righteousness. So for, we first must understand it's a gift, all right? This faith that acquires the righteousness of God. So what is that faith? It's a gift. It doesn't originate with man. It's not something with which we were born. This kind of faith. And we see this all throughout the scripture, but let me just give you a couple examples. In, in Acts 18, which Tyler actually read this morning, he greatly helped those who had believed through grace. Paul preaching there. He greatly helped those who had believed. They had faith through grace. The faith was actually a gift. All right? In Ephesians 2.8, which Jared read this morning. It's not coincidence. All right? I didn't know that he was going to read that. And that just happened to be <clears throat> the passage that we were at in Acts. All right? Both of them have already been quoted this morning. But in Ephesians 2.8, for by grace you have been saved through faith, and then not of yourselves. It is a gift of God. What is a gift of God? The whole process. I don't have time to go into Greek with this, but it's not just—it's not just saved. It's not just through faith. It's all of this is a gift of God. The whole process is a gift. The ability to believe, the gift of Christ—it's all a gift. We also need to understand that it's not merely an intellectual assent to the facts about what Christ did. Okay, okay. Christ came as a vir came and was born of a virgin, born as a baby. Laid in a manger. We're going to sing about that here in a few weeks, aren't we? Right? Away in the manger. And, and grew up. And at, at age 12, he found, his parents found him uh, in, in the temple, basically teaching everyone. And then we get the rest of his really his adult life. And he performs all these miracles. He says, I'm, I, I've come to give myself, my life, a ransom for many. And then they don't like him. And then he walks a road, down a road called Via Della Rosa to a hill called Golgotha. They nail him to a cross. He says, It is finished, paid in full. He raises three days later again, and then, he, and then he ascends to heaven. That's all important, but it's not just believing those facts. Do you know what just believing those facts qualifies you to be? A demon. That's what you're qualified to be. You want to give your resume for a demon? That's a resume for a demon. Where do I get that from? Well, look what it says in James 
Chapter 2, verse 19, you believe that God is one, you do well. The demons also believe, and they shudder. They believe, I mean, they are monotheists. The demons are. They're probably Trinitarian, all right? But, but it all qualifies to the intellectual ascent to some facts about the back of Jesus' baseball card will not make us right before God. Never, ever. So, so what is this, this faith? This faith is one that apprehends or lays hold of the, all that Christ has done through his life, death, and resurrection. It's a transfer of trust. So here's the question. Who are you trusting in to make yourself right with God? Either you're trusting in yourself or you're trusting in Christ. There's no other option because everything else is yourself, ultimately. Or are you trusting in Christ? And, and having faith or believing in Christ is apprehending and laying hold of all he's done for you, D-O-N. Well, there's another transfer that takes place. Not just a transfer of trust, but there's a transfer that takes place. Your sin, I've loved this, for Christ's righteousness. There's another transfer. Or a trade. I mean, I love this. Christ is the one that gets the raw end of the deal on this. I can promise you that. Look what it says in, in 2 Corinthians 5, 21. He made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf that we might become the righteousness of God in him. He took on our sin so we could have his righteousness. What a great transfer. The transfer of our sin to him and his righteousness to us. The righteousness that God demands is actually his very own righteousness credited to our account through faith in Christ. Also, true faith and saving faith, we don't have time to go on this, manifests itself in a growing desire to please God. If we truly trusted in Christ and what he has done, we've given the Holy Spirit, we're given a new heart, it says, and that heart desires to please God. Does it all the time please God? No. But it desires, our desires begin to change. We struggle, we fight, we sin still. But there's a whole new change. There's a change of direction, a change of will in our life. So the acquisition of God's righteousness then comes by what? What's it come by? Through faith. In fact, it's always been by faith. Have you embraced God's righteousness by faith this morning? Have you done that? Have you transferred your trust from trying to gain God, gain God's favor to a pure righteousness in what you do. Transfer it from that to Jesus Christ. If not, I plead for you to do that today. And be safe. Well, we're going to see what you'll be safe from here in a second. Well, the fourth uh, point, the fourth truth we see in our passage here about the righteousness of God is the reach of God's righteousness. Look at verse, the last part of verse 22 through verse 23. For all who, ha- who believe for there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. To what type of people does this righteousness of God reach? What kind of people? All, good. It says in verse 22, to all who believe. All. Those who come to Christ in saving faith will be reached by or given the righteousness of God. All. And in the context of Romans, the word in all and the phrase is all those who believe is significant. It includes both Jews and Gentiles. And this is huge at this time. Jews and Gentiles, not just the Jews. He, Christ didn't just come for the Jews, or even though he was a Jew. He came for Jews and Gentiles. Now notice the phrase in, in the end of verse 22. There is no distinction or there is no difference. There's no distinction among those who are saved. Who's saved? Those who believe. And just as there's no distinction among those who are lost, they have sinned. All right? Now, where's that connection? Well, it's made clear in verse 23. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Notice the word all again. This is a summary of Romans 1.18 through 3.20, like I just mentioned. He summarizes this. All have sinned. He knocked them all down. The righteous man, the religious man, the person who wants to keep the law, the Gentile, he just takes time through Romans, just knocks them all down. Not you, not you, not you, not you. All of sin. You're all guilty before God. And, and Romans 3.20 is a, uh, a, a, a uh, or, or 3.23 is a summary of that. Now look, look back with me if you want to, just to, to be encouraged this morning, of chapter 3, verses 9 through 18. Look what it says. What then? Are we better than they? Not at all. For we have already already charged both Jews and Greeks are all under sin. As it written, there is no, none righteous, not even one. There is none who understands. There is none who seeks for God. All have turned aside. 
Together they've become useless. There's none who does good. There's not even one. Their throat is an open grave. With their tongues they keep deceiving. The poison of asp is under their lips, whose mouth is full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift, swift to shed blood. Destruction and misery are in their paths, and the path of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Who's that talking about? Who are those terrible, evil people? Us. All of us. Welcome to Grace Bible Church. All right, what an encouraging word this morning. Well, it's going to get encouraging because you've got to know the bad news first, right? If you want to know the good news. Every person has sinned in open rebellion against God. Now look at verse 23. They fall short of the glory of God. And this word fall short means to be last. To be last. Who ever likes to come in last? Anybody? Hey, my goal today is to come in last. And as a kid, did everybody ever say that? Never. You don't want to be last. But this is what it means. We all are last. We're all in last place when it comes to the glory of God or giving God the glory that he deserves. Uh, Paul gives us an example of this back in Romans 1. Look at Romans 1, verses 22 and 23. He says this. Professing to be wise, they became fools and exchanged, listen, the glory of the, the incorruptible God for an image in the form of corruptible man and of birth and of birds and four-footed animals and crawling creatures. They'd exchange the truth of God for some who's incorruptible things that do corrupt. How silly is that? They didn't glorify God. We didn't glorify God without Christ. We glorified ourselves or something else or someone else. We're all in last place. Is the righteousness of God just available for certain types of people based on their race, wealth, wisdom, or fame? No. No. It's to all. I love what Charles Spurgeon says. I don't have time to read this whole thing here, but he, he, he says, how, how, and I exactly the same, wait, let me here, okay. If the true preacher of Christ were called to preach before a pit of kings, a group of kings, he must preach nothing but believe and live. And if he were called to speak before an assembly of murderers about to die, the very scum of the earth, he could have no more suitable or appropriate message than this. Believe on Christ Jesus and be saved. It's the same message, whether it's kings or people in prison, or somebody who's wealthy or someone's poor, someone who's famous or someone who no one knows. It's the same message. Believe in Christ. Trust in Christ. His reach the reach of God's righteousness includes all who have sinned. And this is meant to bring hope to those who realize their sin. Once we realize we've sinned, here's great hope. It doesn't matter what you've done. It doesn't matter who you are. It doesn't matter who you know. All that matters is placing your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And all who believe are given God's righteousness. And here's just another... Exhortation to us. All of sin. So, what's our tar target audience for people without Christ? All. All. I don't want to. I don't want to. I don't want to. I want to be careful when I say this. I understand people are trying to be effective in ministering the gospel, but there's a big thing that's gone through. It's kind of died out a little bit for about, but about for about ten years. They would ask churches, "What's your target audience?" People were trying to reach young marrieds. Are you trying to reach senior citizens? Are you trying to reach children? Are you trying to reach youth? Yes. Because all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Are you kidding me? We're not going to share the gospel with them because it's not part of our target audience? It's our target audience. Everyone. Because they all need Christ, right? All have sinned. How are we doing at that? How are we reaching out with the great news of the gospel to people who need the righteousness of God? Because he will demand it from everyone. And they can't do it. They need faith in Christ. The fifth truth here about righteousness of God, the presentation of God's righteousness. Look with me at the last half or the first half of verse 24. Being justified as a gift by his grace. This is how God's righteousness is presented or it comes to us. This is the presentation of God's righteousness. Notice the word justified. It's a passive verb. What's that mean? It's not something we do. It's something that's done to us. I, just, I was talking to somebody this week and they were telling me, and I just love to hear it. We don't hear it much anymore. Maybe we need to change back to older languages. It's probably better. I was saved when... I love that. I was saved. They didn't say anything about, well, you know, back when I trusted in Christ, I heard the gospel. It's not that we don't trust in Christ. They said, I was saved. Because they understood it was something that was done to them. It's not that something they did to get. 
I love those words. Now, out in the world and people who understand, it sounds a little churchy language. You've got to explain all that, right? But I just love to hear someone say that. I was saved. Because it's passive. He justifies. He makes us right with him. The word justifies it, it means to be made righteous, to be declared righteous, to be made right with God. Now look at the, the, the word gift. The word gift has the idea you can't pay for it. You can't purchase it. A gift is a gift. If I were going to give you a gift, and I hand it out, I said, okay, it'll be $100. Is that a gift? You bet. No, no way. It's never a gift. You'd be, what kind of gift is that? I don't want that gift because it's not a gift. A gift we can't earn. We can't pay for Okay? Therefore, we're justified when we're just, we don't pay for it. We don't earn it in any way. I'll direct your attention to the phrase, by his grace. We can't, it's just being almost redundant. Can't work for it. You don't deserve it. It's by grace. It's not what we deserve. We deserve hell. But God gives us life in Christ. And to help us better understand this, what this phrase means, look at Romans 4, 4. Now to the one who works, his rage is not credited as a favor or according to grace, some translations say, but as what is due according to debt. If your relationship to someone is one who you work for them, then you do not, it doesn't bring about grace, it brings about debt. They owe you wages. But God can never be a debtor to anyone. He doesn't owe anyone anything. That's a great reminder for us all the time, isn't it? God doesn't owe us anything. You know what he owes us? Hell. I love the old Puritan said this, anything this side of hell is mercy. And that's so true. He owes us hell, but he doesn't give us hell. He gives us grace. God's righteousness is presented. The presentation of righteousness is being justified as a gift by his grace. The word gift and the word grace from the same Greek word. He wants to emphasize this. We don't earn it. We don't deserve it. We can't work for it. And Paul states this in another way in Romans eleven six. But if, it by, if, but if it's by grace, it's no longer on the basis of works. Otherwise, grace is no longer grace. God's way of transferring righteousness to our account knocks out every ounce of pride in us. You ever had the wind knocked out of you? I mean, I mean you, it's gone. Now, I got hurt in a lot of different ways in football. And usually you get up and you can kind of man it off and kind of limp off and you can shake this off you can shake the shoulder injury off anything like that you get the wind off and you can't get up there's no pride look at this man i'm tough i've got this taken care of when you get the wind completely knocked out of you and i still don't know why when the kids in football the, the coach would grab the front of your pants and go like this that didn't help anything all right it just made you couldn't breathe any more longer right there's no pride you can't get off hey i'm tough and when we understand that, that, that righteousness comes through grace, we didn't do anything for it, we can't stand before God and say, man, aren't you glad to have me? Look what I did. It knocks out every ounce of pride in us when we understand we're saved by grace. Let's look at the sixth uh, and second to last truth here about the righteousness of God in our passage this morning, the price of God's righteousness. What was, pr- what was the price or the cost for us to be justified as a gift by his grace. Uh, we, we see this price of God's righteousness in the second half of verse 24 and verse 25. It says, Though the redemption which is, or through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus, whom God displayed publicly as a propitiation in his blood through faith. Notice the word redemption. It means deliverance at a cost or release by a payment or a ransom. Embedded in this word redemption is this old, in the original language here, is this old word um, ransom that we don't use much anymore. In, in redemption, a person is released by a payment of a ransom. You, you, you watch these movies. You watch it. It's not as much anybody like as much as it used to be. But you, kidnappers, right? What's a kidnapper want? They want money. You got to pay the ransom to get the person back. You got to pay for them to be released to be set free. And we're held captive. We're imprisoned by the guilt and condemnation that comes from sin, which was mentioned in Romans three twenty three all of sin we need to be ransomed and thankfully verse 24 says this ransom that secures our redemption is found in christ jesus jesus said this himself in mark 10 45 for even the son of man did not come to be served but to serve and give his life a ransom for any many how exactly did christ pay this ransom look at verse 25 whom god displayed publicly as a propitiation in his blood through faith this ransom was not done in the dark it was done publicly God displayed him publicly on a cross. It didn't happen behind the building. 
It happened at the intersection where the uh, 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 Beltway 8 and 288. That's where it happened, where everybody could see. Publicly. Now notice the word propitiation. You may say it's atoning sacrifice in your, in your script, in your, in your passage, but this particular word propitiation is used elsewhere referring to the mercy seat, all right, that sat on the Ark of the Covenant in the Holy of Holies in the tabernacle in the Old Testament. Blood from the sacrifice of the animals was sprinkled on the mercy seat. To, which was always looking forward to what Christ would ultimately do. He'd be the fulfillment of this, what was pointing to. All right? And this would appease or satisfy God's demand that sin must be punished. It would turn away God's wrath from his people who had sinned. And it would turn the wrath from his people onto the sacrifice. Those lambs took, God, took, took it for us, right? They took it for them. That was what they were supposed to understand. Someone else is paying for my sin. The word propitiation here carries with the idea of turning away of God's wrath onto the sacrifice of his son. Think about this. He took what we reserved and poured it out on his son. His wrath, his just wrath. Paul in his letter to the church of Colossians explains this uh, in Colossians 2, 13-14. When you were dead in your transgressions and the uncircumcision of your flesh, he made you alive together with him, having forgiven us all our transgression, having canceled out the certificate, certificate of debt consisting of decrees against us which was hostile to us and he has taken it out of the way having nailed it to the cross Jesus turned away the wrath of God by taking on our certificate of death because of our sin he took that out the demanded death he took it on the cross he turned away God's wrath and put it on himself that was the ransom price that was paid and that's an eternal of eternal value which became described eternal is the best we got eternal value so that we could have the righteousness of God transferred to us we can never thank God enough the righteousness he gives us as a gift by his grace through the avenue of the wrath deflecting death of Jesus Christ on our behalf and that's great news seventh truth in our passage concerning the righteousness of God is the de demonstration of God's righteousness look at verse the rest of verse 25 through verse 26 this was to demonstrate his righteousness because in the forbearance of God he passed over the sins previously committed for the demonstration, I say, of his righteousness at the present time so he would be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Paul tells us the reason God poured out his wrath that we deserve on his perfect sinless son. He tells us the reason. Why? Well, notice the word demonstrate or to show some translations say in verse 25. Also the word demonstrate or to show in verse 26. So what did God want to demonstrate? It says he wanted to demonstrate his righteousness. Why did he want to show or demonstrate his righteousness? Look at the, the, the phrase in verse 25. Because, here's the purpose, because in the forbearance of God he passed over the sins previously committed. What does this mean? It means that God for centuries has been doing what was said in Psalm 103.10. He has not dealt with us according to our sins, nor rewarded us according to our iniquities. In his forbearance or his extreme patience, God has been passing over thousands and millions of sins and letting them go without punishing them. That's what he's saying. Billions of sins. He's been letting them go without punishment. Now, if this is a case, he's letting them go without punishment, then one must cry that God is unjust. If it just ends there, that's true. God's unjust to let sin just go unpunished. That's not right. That's not just. Part of the nature of God is to be just, and therefore, he is, he, he, to be just, he needs to punish sin. Suppose someone broke into the Porsche dealership in Houston. They got surveillance camera all over. They've always wanted a Porsche 911 Turbo. I've always wanted one of those, too. All right? And they break in, and they drive off of the Porsche 911, and they catch the guy. They bring him before the judge. They got surveillance cameras on this guy. He's smiling at the camera, waving the whole thing. They can't miss. This is the guy. He didn't come with a mask or anything. They know he's guilty. And the, and, and the judge says, you stole that Porsche. I know it. I saw your face. And the guy's going, yeah, you, you got me. He said, that's okay. You're forgiven. Go on. What would you say about that judge? He's unjust. He's not a judge. Fire that guy. Take away his money. Take away his pension. I mean, that's unjust. You don't do that. And if God just let sin happen and forgave sin without any payment, then people could accuse him of being unjust. 
In fact, that God himself condemns such a person in Proverbs 17:15. He who justifies the wicked and he who condemns the righteous, both of them alike are abomination to the Lord. This person would be an unjust judge. Is God an unjust judge? May it never be. That's impossible. Now look at verse 26, the phrase that says, so that he would be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Christ. With this phrase before us, let's ask this question. Why did God want to demonstrate his righteousness? Meaning he is right and he always does right in all that he does. He wanted to show that he is just. He punished sin in his son. Sin was punished. God was just. And that he was the justifier of the one who has faith in Christ. He didn't simply ignore sin, for that would have made him unjust. But he paid the price of sin in Christ and therefore can justify those who place their faith in the payment that Jesus paid. See, isn't that wonderful? God's in a dilemma, isn't he? If God could be in a dilemma. But he solves the dilemma by having Christ take the punishment for us. So he is not unjust and he justifies those who have faith in Christ. Wow. God demonstrated that he is the definition of righteousness and he can therefore offer his righteousness to those who meet his standard of righteousness. And how do they meet their tra- his standard of righteousness? He gives, him, he gives us his very own righteousness through faith in Christ. That's the gospel. That's good news. Why don't we jump into them down and say hallelujah? I'm kidding, but hey, you don't have to do that. But we, that should just move us to unbelievable thankfulness to God. I'm so glad it, it's not my way and it's not your way because our way would never get it done. So how do we respond? Well, if you've never transferred your trust and put it in what Christ has done for his payment for your sin, my prayer is you would do that this morning. You would repent, turn from trusting in yourself and turn and trust in the Lord Jesus Christ for what he's done. And for all the rest of us. So who is this gospel, this righteousness of God offered to? All. All. Jew, Gentile, slave, free, poor, rich, whoever it is. It's freely offered to them. Are we offering it? Are we offering it? What a great opportunity we have to do that, right? What a great privilege. Let's do that for the glory of God. That they might know the righteousness of God in them through faith in Christ. Let's pray. Lord, thank you so much for your word. Um, thank you, Lord, for uh, the great news that, Lord, we are justified freely by grace through the gift of your Son. Lord, may that truth never leave our hearts, never leave our minds. May it be this, the, the, the uh, focus of our conversation. Lord, by your grace, may we respond and by letting everybody know about this great news. It's not about us. It's about you and what you did through Jesus. We pray this in his name.